0: it's good to be back. I really am uh, honored uh, when I'm able to get away and think and have the dust clear to my mind and stop and realize you know, where I'm at. I'm very honored and humbled to be here. So thank you all. Uh, I'm reminded again of uh, y'all's patience with me. Thank you for that. But you know, a while back I was listening to a message by John Ortberg. And John shared some very... Uh, I thought, interesting facts. I haven't checked these, so if these are wrong, these are his fault, okay? But let me share them with you. He said that in 1950, the average house size in America was 983 square feet, housing 3.37 people. In 2011, the average house size was 2,480 square feet, housing 2.7 people. So the number of people has shrunk. Meanwhile, our house size is doubled and a half. And primarily because we have so much stuff. We just need that space to put our stuff. And you, get, you run out of room in the house, it goes in the basement, ends up in the garage. Independent studies showed that 75% of homeowners can't get their car in the garage because of too much stuff. Can you relate to that? I don't know what to do with it. I was cleaning the garage the other day, and I thought, this is crazy. How can a, a person be expected to live an organized life with a simple two-car garage? for credit? I need a three-car garage like all my neighbors have. That's what I have to have as well. To my stuff. Well, Somebody came with this great idea see that what we could do is we could um, rent space to people who have too much stuff, and they could like take all their ancillary stuff and secondary stuff and they can like pay money to come and, and, and hold it here and they can like just come visit it when they when they need to uh, a second stuff fix we could do that and that started the the self storage industry you know self storage industry the amount of square feet dedicated to the self-storage industry in America. Now we're not talking about garages, official self-storage units, amount of square feet dedicated to it. 2.85 billion that's, that's Manhattan Island. Three times. Wall to wall to wall to wall to wall to wall. Storage units because we've got lots of stuff. We just have tons. tons. The self-storage industry. Two billion dollar a year industry. You know, it blows my mind because they don't even make anything. They don't give you anything. They just rent space. That's what they do. That's what they're about. The largest commercial real estate, uh, developer. Right now in America. Not hotels, not restaurants, but self-storage. This has even started shows a couple weeks ago. I, I watched storage wars. Have you seen that? Storage wars. You get I guess these guys an auction because, because see if you get one of these little storage units, but you default and paying your rent. The guys who own all the little storage units get to keep your stuff. And then they auction it off to somebody, and I guess the people just kind of buy the storage thing without really being able to see inside. And then the movie, they go through, the show they go through, and whether or not they they made a killing or or not. And this blows my mind because not only are we captivated with accumulating stuff, we, we... are entertained by accumulating stuff. This is, what we, we, this is how we're entertained, people accumulating stuff. And so these guys rent it, and then they sell it to someone else who's got to, after they bought it, who has to probably rent storage space to store the stuff as well. It's self-storage stuff. Now, the problem with, with stuff is not only is it in our basement, it ends up in our garage, it ends up in our self-storage unit, but it ends up in our heart, and it ends up in our soul, and it begins to over, overflow now this, this is this is why we're we're doing this series, um, money talks, and a couple reasons. First of all, money does talk. My money talks to me all the time. It says goodbye. That's what it says. It talks. <laughs> Money's very hard to get, and it's harder to keep, and it's crazy hard to manage appropriately. It's so, uh, it's crazy. But also, Scripture and Jesus say a lot about money. You know, you know, Jesus gave us 30, 30 parables, little short. Stories, 19 of them deal with money. Two thirds of his little stories deal with money. Jesus spoke more about money than he did heaven, than he did hell, than he did prayer, than he did the Bible, than he did witnessing, than he did being good to your neighbor. Matter of fact, other than the kingdom of God, which was Jesus' primary message, he spoke more about money than anything else. And yet, you know, he never took an offering. He wasn't trying to get rich. Jesus lived in, in, in poverty, and he was very content with that. So we've got to ask, well, what's he talking about? He, Jesus, the great economizer of words, what's he sharing all this time about money? Because Jesus knows that the, his number one competitor for the allegiance of our hearts is Money. And if that's true in first century Palestine without the marketers, without Amazon, without eBay, how much so for us today? You know, it's interesting. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says that that no man can serve two masters. Either he's going to love the one and hate the other, or he's going to be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. There's this war going on in our heart for for money. And what we want to do see, is we want to be able to serve Jesus in money, God in money. You know, like Judas. Followed after Jesus, Judas did. He preached. Probably, I don't know, guessing he was a good, good preacher. He definitely had a gift of, of administration. Judas could have worked miracles. Judas followed after Jesus. He paid a price to follow after Jesus. But in his heart... Money was there. And Jesus knows that sooner or later those two are going to come together. And they did for Judas and he had to choose Jesus or money. He went with the money. Rich young ruler. Same thing. Rich young ruler. Neat guy. He, he, He came to Jesus. He sought out Jesus. He was a religious guy, the rich young ruler. And he knew the Bible because when Jesus said, well, you need to do these things, he said, yeah, I'm doing those. I, I know those commands. I've got them down. I'm doing them. I'm applying the Bible. I, I'm, I'm after you, Jesus, in religion. And, and Jesus says, well, what's in your other hand? He says, well, what? What other hand? He says, the, 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 one, the one behind your back, what's in that one? He says, oh, uh, oh, oh, this one. Well, uh, nothing. And Jesus said, what's in it? He said, I don't want to let go of my stuff. And Jesus says, you know what? You're hanging on to me as insurance. Really, this is what's got your heart. And until you let go of this, you really don't have me. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder how many of us, I wonder about me, how the battle in my heart is going for for, for greed. It's interesting. Jesus also says this. Luke chapter 12. He said, watch out! Be on your guard against all kinds of greed because life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. I think this is one of the few sins that Jesus looks at his people and says, Better be careful about this one. Watch out for this one. The inference is this one's very subtle. You know, he never says, Watch out, be careful about adultery. You know, if you're in someone else's. Bed with someone else's partner, you, you, you know that you know it's not a surprise. Whoa, who are you? you know what's going on. He doesn't say watch out for murder because if you are killing somebody, you know you are killing somebody. But watch out for greed, he says. I don't know if I've ever met anybody who says, you know, that's my problem, greed. I am just, I am just greedy. I've not anybody who said that, but yet here is the prison issue, right? Because none of us think we're greedy, right? We're not, we're not That's other people, not me. But Jesus uses two thirds of his parables to talk about greed. Is it possible that either Jesus grossly underestimated the purity of our hearts or that he knew something that we don't know and that greed is deceptive and that there's a battle which is one of two things. Battle for God or battle for money. And so that's why we're doing this series. This is a great time to do this series. The church isn't tanking financially. We're not in the middle of a major capital campaign. We just want to stop and say, if Jesus has devoted so much time and so many words to this, maybe we need to stop and get a little emotional intelligence and say, not deny reality. We don't have to tell anybody else this, but be, recognize ourselves. You know what? This could be my problem, and I don't even know it. It could be my issue. And so here's a prayer that we want to be praying between now and the end of the series, individually, Lord, to what extent has greed taken my heart? Would you open my eyes to that? I think he wants to answer that. It's kind of like Alcoholics Anonymous kind of thing. If you don't recognize that you might have a problem, forget the idea of a solution. It's just not going to happen. So it's starting to say, you know what, do I have an issue here, Lord? To what extent... Do I have an issue? If you got your Bibles with you this morning, would you turn with me to Luke 19? Because what we want to do this morning is we want to look at a case study of what a follower of Christ, what a normal perspective of money is for a follower of Christ. Someone who's come to understand the gospel of grace, what a normal perspective of, of money is to such a person. And as we see that, we want to ask, oh, is that me? Or to what extent does that mean? Luke chapter 19. Now, as you're in Luke chapter 19, or turning to Luke 19, this will give you... Interesting. Luke, every eighth verse in Luke, he talks about money. Luke is all, all over this thing. In chapter 15, Jesus Luke gives a very famous... Jesus gives a very famous parable of a boy who could choose between his father or money, and he chose money. And then he found out that he was... Bankrupt in a lot of different ways, came back to his father. Then in chapter 17, he gives, uh, uh, excuse me, chapter 18 gives a couple of uh, parables on money. He, he talks about the rich young ruler, this guy who had a choice between Jesus and money, and he chose money. And then you get to chapter 19, and he says Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. You know, if you ever do a study on the IRS and their power, that's an amazing these guys have some power, don't they? If they Uncle Sam wants to get paid. <laughs> and, and if and if an IRS agent thinks that you might not be above board, he's not going to give you the time to launder this stuff, to hide it, to put it somewhere else. He's, they can come and seize your stuff immediately, levy all kinds of, of, of taxes on you, liens on your, your stuff. You don't want to cross an IRS agent wrong. You just want to be on the good side of these guys. You just, you just want to be there. Because even if you're okay and you've done nothing wrong, they can create a financial nightmare for you if they desire that, that kind of power. Zacchaeus was a Roman IRS agent. That's who he was. That's what he was about. Now, you've got to keep in mind, Israel was a conquered uh, people. Rome had conquered them. The only reason they were letting Israel hang around was so that they can take all of the wealth in Israel and transfer it to Rome. That was the goal, that's what they were about. And so Rome levied these major ta- backbreaking taxes on Israel. And to help collect them, they needed some some people who knew the folk, who knew the area. And so they would grab these these renegade, these collaborators, these folk who turned their back on Judaism to help them be, and these guys were the tax gatherers. Now, you can imagine how well these people were liked by their uh, Jewish counterparts. They had taken the nation... And they decided that they weren't going to be a part of it anymore. They helped Rome strengthen its grip on the throat of the Jewish people. They, they, they took money. matter of fact, this is what a tax collector could do. It's kind of like a franchise. You buy this from Rome, basically. But you promised Caesar X number of dollars for every person. And you had to come, come with that. But then you could also demand more money from that person, as much as you wanted. You thought they could come up with for your, to line your own pockets. And so, so Rome, wanting to make sure that you did a good job with this, gave you military support. So when you saw a tax gatherer come walking towards you, flanked by Roman guards, it's like, oh no, oh they're going to shake you down. And it was legal. This was something out of a mafia movie, but it was legal. They could demand whatever they wanted from you. And, and Zacchaeus' situation, he's a little bit, it's a little bit worse because it says he was a chief tax collector. He's literally, he is the arch tax collector. He's in charge of of all the tax collectors in that area. And you got to know that Zacchaeus didn't reach that place climbing the ladder because Rome just liked him because he was a nice guy. It's because he had spent years breaking the backs of his Jewish people, sending Jewish boys and girls to bed hungry, destroying financially the, the, the Jewish people. He was not a well-liked guy. He was the arch enemy of of, of Israel. Now let me stop for just a second. As we talk about this, we want to make sure in Scripture we cannot ever equate wealth with unrighteousness. I mean, you look at Abraham, look at David, look at Solomon, you want to go to the New Testament, that's fine. You look at Lydia, you look at Nicodemus, you look at Philemon. Wealth is never the issue. It's never the issue. It's not a problem. Wealth is an inanimate object. It can't be right or wrong. It's what it does to our hearts. It's if we make it a God where, where the problem comes in. It's when uh, the scripture refers to it as greed. And you need to know greed wears lots of different hats. Let's look back at Luke 12. What did it say? Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of Greed. Of course there's the the conspicuous consumer person. They love money just because of what it buys them. Money is fun. It's fun. it's fun. And so they're buying stuff and they're the latest gadget, the newest that, and the newest that thing and they they are looking fine and they are doing they are enjoying life. Money for them is all about uh fun and comfort. They're the conspicuous consumer. And people might look at them and go oh. greedy, greedy. But there there's another hat that greed can wear. And it is the obsessive Security saver. Somebody who 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 is not going to be spending all their money for them. For them, money is all about security. And so they got the bank account and they got the portfolios and they got the investments and they got the RAs because there might be a rainy day. And there might be a lot of them. And there might be a typhoon. And my kids got to get college and I might live to be 140. And how's going to cover retirement at that point? And so I've got to make sure. Because I don't know if I'm ever going to have enough because something can go wrong and things go wrong in life. don't think the market can crash and I don't know. Ah! And they're too worried because money is, for them, security. All kinds of greed. All kinds of greed. We're not talking carelessness here, generosity. Greed sometimes looks like the power player. The power players, somebody who, well, they buy stuff and they save, certainly. But money for them, for whatever psychological reason we could get into, um, is all about power. They are important as they are in control. And they use their money to influence and to be in charge and to be on top of things and to be in control because that that, that sense of control for them is greed. Now, all three of those folk would look at each other and point the finger and say, greedy, greedy, not me, greedy, greedy, greedy. And maybe all of them give a little bit to, to church. You need to know that greed in Scripture has nothing to do with the size of your closet or, or the size of, of your, your IRA, A your kid. As if poor people can't be, be greedy. Greed is an obsessive anxiety over money. That's all I think about. I, I worry about it all the, all the all the time. I I I I need it. I gotta take care of it. All of my decisions are financial decisions. How much is this going to cost me? And and is this going to be oh, okay? And how much will I make here? And every decision is a financial decision. Probably greed isn't real far away. Greed carries lots of hat, wears lots of hats, and Zacchaeus had made. That battle raging. God had left a long time ago. Money was it, greeted. He traded Christ for cash and the deity for dollars. It says in verse three, he wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not, because of the crowd. so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. and also tells us three other things about Zacchaeus. First of all, he was short. And I think what Luke's doing is he wants to explain to us how in the world Zacchaeus got up in a sycamore tree, why he's climbing a tree in the first place. Well, he went to the parade too late, and everyone's in front of him, and they're tall, and Zacchaeus is a short stature, he can't see over everybody. So he wanted to see Jesus, so he climbs this, this tree. Part of the reason we need to know, Zacchaeus was short. I wonder, though, if there's another reason. And if you grew up short, you know that it's difficult in a tall man's world to be short kids can be cruel and no doubt Zacchaeus took his, his quote of, 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 of verbal jabbings finding friends who were loyal, eh, scarce finding people who were mocking well, they were plentiful and being the victim of a lot of, of verbal stonings, I just wonder I wonder if partially Zacchaeus is was saying you know what Let's see who amounts to nothing here. Yeah, yeah, people, you turn your back on me. I'm going to turn my back on the nation. I'll show you. I wonder, I wonder if that was part of Zacchaeus' driving force, most driven people. There's something that's driving them. I wonder if that was Zacchaeus' He was, he was driven. Uh, also, we see that he was curious, though. He wanted to see Jesus. You wonder why in the world is Zacchaeus' An arch tax collector. Why does, why does he want to see Jesus? He turned his back on Judaism a long time ago. Yeah, word is out this could be the Messiah, but what does that got to do with it? But I wonder if Zacchaeus started thinking of maybe one of his friends, Matthew. Well, now Matthew's jurisdiction, tax collecting, was in, in the further in the north, but. Still, they were a fraternity, basically, because everyone else hated their guts. I wonder if he knew Matthew. If not, he knew of Matthew. Why did Matthew leave? A a very enviable, very lucrative position to follow this guy. And and they say this is the Jewish Messiah who likes tax collectors. (laughs) What is that about? And I've done some bad things. I don't know, I've done a whole lot more than Matthew. Matthew. So he's curious, but also he climbs up this tree which lets us know he's more than curious. He is desperate. Could you see a uh, Donald Trump type guy climbing a tree because he wants to see the parade? Now, it's just not going to happen. Now especially in this time when, when rights were not the key issue here. The key issue was dignity and respect. And no, well, no one who wants respect... A man who wants respect is going to be climbing a tree. But the fact that Jesus climbed shows that his, his heart was desperate. His heart was desperate. You know, many of us we we got the, the the Rockefeller thing. You know, how much do you need? Well, I need just a little bit more. It's our mindset is, well, I don't have enough yet. See, I'm still feeling anxious because I don't have enough yet. But once I get enough, then I'll. So we, that keeps us drive that keeps driving us because we need a little bit more. But see, has had it all. He said, "I've got it all," and, and somehow they're still in emptiness. What's with that? I thought it would feel different when I got to the top. What's with that? As false gods always do, Zacchaeus' god of greed, money, let him down. They let him down. And so, verse 5, it says, When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a center. Now, no doubt the parade was full that day. You probably wouldn't have climbed a tree if he could have squeezed in somewhere. It was I mean, you had moms and dads and teenagers and little kids everywhere. And you had uh, fishermen and you you had merchants and you had slave folk and you had Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees and, and folk who were there who claimed to love the Mosaic law system. They were trying. They were looking for the Messiah. Might this be it? They were all righteous in a sense. And then you got Zacchaeus there. A most hated person. And Jesus, the parade's going on, and Jesus smiling and uh, he's signing autographs and uh, and uh, kissing babies. And all of a sudden it stops. And he looks up at the tree and there's Zacchaeus. And all the people stop and they what's Jesus looking? Oh, Zacchaeus. They know Zacchaeus. Their kids have gone to hungry because of Zacchaeus. Their kids didn't get bread so Zacchaeus could have another purple plush pillow. Because of those rings on his that's what cost their brother his his life. You can imagine, not a lot of feeling. And Zacchaeus is staring at Jesus. I don't know how far they are away, but but staring at Jesus? And Zacchaeus knows that I pretty much trampled underfoot the covenant. If this is the Messiah that the Old Testament speaks of, he probably realizes that I've thrown that away. I said I want nothing to do with it. I was going to side with Rome. And I I wonder if he recognizes that I have stolen and skimmed off the top and and exhorted and and er, everything else and and broke the backs of his people that he loves so much. I wonder if he knows that I I did that. And Jesus looks a bit at Zacchaeus and begins to speak, and all the people wonder, what's what's Jesus going to say now? And Jesus, though, looks beyond the gold rings and the purple, the nice clothes, Jesus looks beyond. Jesus looks past the past. Stuff that's going to have to be dealt with. Jesus will deal with it later on. But he looks past that. He sees the heart of a guy who's desperate. He recognizes that this guy has had an idol. The battle for his heart was lost. But at that point, Zacchaeus has changed. And Jesus says the most remarkable thing. Zacchaeus, come down. I want to hang out with you. I want to go to your house and hang out with you. Now, in their culture, going into someone's house, especially to eat, have a meal with, was a sign of deep friendship and loyalty. It's like we're best buddies. And the people were like, what? And that's what they're saying. Are you serious? Does he know who he's going? What's going on? And Zacchaeus, the lights are starting to come on because he is the most unrighteous person in that whole crowd that day. No question most unrighteous person. And he thought he was looking for Jesus. Come to find out, Jesus was looking for him. And unless we get the story wrong here, Zacchaeus didn't ask Jesus in his life. Jesus asked Zacchaeus into his. And Zacchaeus is blown away with grace. What's this about, Lord? You know. Jesus says, yeah, I know. I want want a relationship with you. And it's cool. Jesus didn't say, fix things first, Zacchaeus. Then we'll get a relationship together. Zacchaeus, go straighten stuff out. You owe a bunch of these folk here today an apology. You better, And then we'll come hang. I want a relationship with you now. What happens with Zacchaeus? This is cool. Once he experiences the grace of God, he understands what the gospel is all about here. So Zacchaeus stood up. And he said to the Lord, Lord, look, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. I'm giving 50% away. And this pretty, that's way more than what the Old Testament law required that he give away. He says, I'm giving 50% of them away. <laughs> and then he says, and if I've cheated anybody, and I can see Jesus looking at him, if you've cheated anybody, <laughs> well, okay, those I've cheated, I'm giving Four times. Now, the Old Testament law said if you stole stolen anything, restitution 20%. Zacchaeus is coming down with 300% restitution. And Jesus doesn't say, Whoa, Zacchaeus, you've been away from the law a long time, buddy. You don't understand the regulations. Calm down a little bit. Jesus lets him go. I man Jesus. I imagine Jesus is smiling and laughing with all of this. Uh, what happens is... The God that was in Zacchaeus' heart has just been disposed. The Son of God stages an incredible coup. And Jesus frees one who's been captured by greed. Zacchaeus' allegiances have changed. You know, it's interesting when you look at what he says here. Don't, don't, don't throw this part out. He says, uh, salvation, Jesus said, salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. That's a huge line. Because the people, the Jewish people, they were sons of Abraham, the promise of God. And and, and they were were, were seeking to to, uh, live according to... The promise, they were looking for God to, to bless uh, them because they were his children. Uh, a unique relationship with, with God. They were following the Mosaic law. They were in the land that God himself had given. They were children of, of Abraham. But, but Zacchaeus, when he decided, I'm going with Rome, he traded his birthright for, for a bowl of, of Roman coins porridge. And he said, I'm done with this. I don't need it anymore. And basically, he was cutting off his Judaism. I'm done with it. And so for Jesus to look at him and say, this guy's a son of Abraham. People would like, "Ah, do you have a clue what he's done? And Jesus "Ah, I know his heart. He's got a heart of faith like Abraham. The battle that's been raging. Greed money's not a part. It's not on that throne anymore. Now, it's interesting what Jesus says here. Jesus doesn't say, Zacchaeus, those are some cool promises and all. I know it's a bit of an emotional time and people tend to overpromise when they're emotional. God, Zacchaeus. If you do this, though, then salvation will come to your home. He doesn't say that. Salvation has come. The, the, the generosity is a normal response to one who's come to understand the grace of Christ. It's a normal, normal, normal response. Also notice, Jesus doesn't say, what does Jesus see to make him say salvation has come to his home? Does he say, Zacchaeus, you got a pretty cool, pretty orthodox doctrinal statement. I can see you You understand your eschatology pretty good. And you've got this pneumatology. You've got the Holy Spirit thing all down. And you've got a great doctrinal statement. Salvation has come to this house. He doesn't say Zacchaeus. You know, you've been serving my church for a lot of years. Zacchaeus, salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus, you're just kind to your neighbors. Zacchaeus, salvation has come to this house. Nothing wrong with those things. Matter of fact, we need all of those things. We've got to have orthodoxy and and serving. It has to be there. But can you hold a great doctrinal statement and money at the same time. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. The number one competitor for our hearts is money. And when Jesus saw his generosity, he knew. Heart's been changed. His heart's been changed. One day, Old Testament, God came to his people who he has shown his grace to over and over and over. And And they, they definitely, folk who should have known about his grace but they forgot. Easy to do in this world. It's just easy to, to, to forget. Now, let me back up for just a second and say a couple things. First of all, um, God does not need your money to support his work. And, you know, It's like, well, you know what? God's really not in the driver's seat. I am. And if I give some money, we'll see what God can do. And if I don't, then God's just not going to be able to work. And God's saying, <laughs> oh, come on, please. When you go, I got some stuff I want to do, but if you don't give me the money, then I can We do not support God's work. God does not need your money. He doesn't need a penny of it. God invites you to share in his work. God doesn't need our money. God doesn't need us to be generous. We need to be generous. Because this battle is going on in our heart. That is, we're generous. The the money grip loosens. And God grip strengthens. Uh, So God comes to his people in Malachi chapter 3. And he says this. He says, Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, Well, how do we rob you? How does someone rob God? For crying out loud. In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you'll not have enough room for it. In Malachi's day, it's not really far from our day, there are people who are doing very well, who are saying, you know what, Lord, I mean, I could tithe when I made a dollar, it's a dime, but I'm making $150,000 a year, I can't tithe, $15,000, are you serious, I'm not going to get legalistic about this, all right, you know what, I mean, that's, that's Old Testament law, God, and he's like saying, well, hang on, uh, Malachi's day, you guys are under Old Testament law, come on, pony up, and oh, you know what, Lord, I'm looking to grace, plus those guys might not be able to really take care of it well, and I think I can steward it better, and... I don't know if I can let that's a lot of cabbage. And then there were people, Malachi's day, like today, not going so well. And they'd say, You know, God, you know my heart, you know, I really want to. But we never really recovered from that captivity thing, you know. I mean, the recession is still, it's, it's digging in. And uh, I'm having a hard time getting a job, and I might be uh, laid off one day, and the clouds are coming in. It looks like lots of rain down the road, and I just have to be prepared. And I know you understand, God, because, I mean, you don't need my money anyway, God. And, uh, I mean, I, and God says, will you test me in this? He said, he said he, Scripture, God says as far as wealth, make money. Make lots of it. The more the merrier. Go for it. That's fine. Just be ethical about it. Don't throw anyone under the bus. Nothing shady. Just be, just do it right. Don't, don't do anything stupid. Be wise with it. No crazy destructive debt. And honor me because it will take over your heart in a second. And God's people decided no, they weren't going to honor him battle's raging. It's going to probably rage, y'all, until we see him face to face. How are you doing with it? Let's, let's turn our attention to the screen and see how one of, our, one of our own congregants dealt with this.
1: Well, I guess I've always heard of tithing, but really never understood it or applied it to my life. Uh, but uh, basically my story starts uh, when I was really early in my career I lost my job when I was in my early 20s and uh, so I wasn't making a whole lot of money uh, at that time as it was and so after I was lose, after I lost my job I uh, I was then collecting unemployment and so now I was even making less than I was before but uh, I was involved with the uh, fellowship group of other uh, uh, Christian believers and One of the guys was uh, old enough and wise enough to approach me. We were waiting in in front of the elevators. He came up to me and he asked me point blank, he says, so are you tithing? So I says, I simply can't afford to tithe at this time. And uh, he got up to me and, and he says, you know what, Pete? He says, quite frankly, you can't afford not to tithe, especially now. I said, well, what are you talking about? And he says, look, don't you know, believe what I say, simply go home and read Malachi chapter 3, and uh, see what I'm talking about, and actually challenge God, put him to the test, he's, he's made promises, he's made a request, he's made a command. Uh, reluctantly, I did go home, and uh, I did pick up the book of uh, Malachi and from the Bible, and and I studied it, and uh, to be honest with you, we, reluctantly at first, uh, um, I did start to tithe. I, I, obviously, I don't believe it was coincidence that very, very shortly thereafter, it's just a matter of, of weeks, if that, um, I got a really good job offer with another company. I knew he was always faithful. But he was specifically faithful in that area of my life. I know that he's not interested in how much you give uh, of your money. I think he's really interested in how much you're going to give of your heart and your obedience to him. And uh, I don't know, (laughs) you know, uh, what tomorrow may bring. You know, there may be challenges uh, that that I don't know what will happen. And I pray that I'll have the uh, faith... (laughs) You know, and trust, you know, that, that Job would have, you know, even in the bad times, still bless you know, to bless his names and good times bless his name. <laughs> oh, you gotta love Pete.
0: How how you doing with this the battle that's raging in your heart? Would you say just between you and God? Lord, I'm not sure who's winning this battle. I'm not sure where that's at. And let me just mention this too. If you're visiting or if you're maybe even coming for a while, I don't know. You've climbed the ladder and you're, 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 you're there. You're kind of like Zacchaeus. You're a big man. You, you, you've arrived. But you've arrived to find out that, you know what, there's just something not right. It's not. This This all there is. And I believe today, you, you might be upon a limb someplace. Jesus is walking by saying, hey, you, I know what you're dealing with. I know, false gods. Yeah, I, I want to be with you. When Jesus left Zacchaeus, it wasn't too long later, he went into Jerusalem, where he'd be crucified for Zacchaeus' sins, all those things that Zacchaeus did. And he was crucified for my sins, and he was crucified for yours, if you would trust him. And I just want to give you an opportunity. If if, if you're skeptical, please, if, if you're skeptical, like this guy says after my wallet, hang on your wallet. And uh, please know you never have to give a penny here, please. please. I, I never know what's just, you, you don't. But just between you and God, I mean, don't let that stop. Be generous someplace else, but don't let that stop if he's calling you now and saying, hey, would you come down can we be together? Because Zacchaeus didn't have to come down when he heard the Lord's voice. He could have said, no, nah, just keep on going. i got my curiosity field. I'm all right. Uh, perhaps he's calling your name right now.